Life is full of challenges. With an unpredictable economy and just as surprising life changes, you need to be prepared to weather any storm. Elder Law and Estate Planning Attorney Kevin Tharp and Financial Advisor Gary Anderson are available to help you with life's difficult decisions. This is Truth in Planning. Ways to help boost your Social Security retirement benefits. I'm Gary Anderson, Financial Advisor, Anderson Advisors. And I'm Kevin Tharp, Elder Law and Estate Planning Attorney. Kevin, Social Security is always on people's minds. It really begets on people's minds when they're getting closer to retirement because you have to start making decisions. You're working. You've been working all these years. You wake up early in the morning. You go to your job. You maybe enjoy your job. Hopefully you have during the years. So you've enjoyed what you're doing, but you also are looking forward to enjoying the next phase of your life, which is retirement. And a key component of everyone's retirement, a key income component, because really when it comes to retirement, income is everything. As long as you've got the right amount of income coming in and you know it's going to keep coming throughout your retirement, then you're not as concerned about things financially too much because you know you can pay for things and do the things you want to do. But what you've, you find out, though, when you've been working and you've set some retirement date that you're going to stop working, when that day finally comes, one thing that also uh, happens is your paycheck is going to go away. That paycheck that you've been used to getting with your job all these years goes away. And so you have to have a replacement for that. Partially, it can be replaced by your Social Security. And that, in addition to income from your investments, maybe a part-time job, things like that, some people do that, that builds your retirement income. If you have if there's two spouses, both of you can put together a pretty decent income just in Social Security alone if you've been working long enough to accumulate good, a good Social Security benefit. But people always ask the question, you know, what, am, what, what do I do for income? I know Social Security is not going to be here. It's probably going to go away at some point. I never tell people that I agree with that because I think eventually, even though Social Security is on eh, kind of shaky ground at this point in time, I believe that uh, we will come up with a way to continue Social Security and people will be able to continue to get that because they're putting money into it. And the only reason I think it hasn't been fixed is politically. I mean, it's, it's a political time bomb when it comes right down to it, and nobody wants to tackle that. Nobody in Washington wants to tackle Social Security on either side of the aisle because it could be, if, they, if it's done wrong or misinterpreted, it could be the end of their political careers, which I don't know about you, Kevin, but uh, some of them probably could stand up and end to their political careers. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but nevertheless. And that's the, a negative because? <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. The rest of us are out here, though. We just want to get our Social Security. And so and it'll look, it, a few numbers. In 2023, the average retiree's Social Security payment hovered around $1,830 a month. $1,830 each month. That was the average Social Security recipients. Well, some people are out there right now saying, well, my, my Social Security is way more than that. Yes, it very well could be. Um, in 2024, if you're getting $1,830 a month, that actually goes to $1,900 a month because you will get a 3.2% cost of living increase 
on your Social Security for 2024. So you're going to get that pay raise. And that helps to offset income that you were getting when you were working all those years. But there are other things that you have to think about, too, when it comes to Social Security is when are you going to start taking Social Security? At what time are you going to take it? Because if you'd waited, let's say somebody, the average, let's say somebody was making $1,830 a month in Social Security. Well, and let's say they started that when they were 62 years old. If they had waited until they were 66, that $1,830 would have represented $3,627 a month. So those few years made a, would make a huge difference if you can wait. Sometimes people can't wait. But $43,000 plus a year when you're getting $3,600 a month is way more significant than $21,000 a year. It can do a lot for you. But we have to look at everything and make sure that we are doing it the right way when we start to take Social Security, make the right decisions then, because you can't back out of it. If you're 62 and you decide to start receiving Social Security benefits at that age, you do have, over the next year, the, the opportunity to back out of that, believe it or not. You can stop it and start it back at a different age. After that 12 months is up, though, you're stuck with it then. And a lot of times people find out, let's say they're getting Social Security at age 62, they're still working, and uh, let's say they decide to retire at that age. A lot of times people find out, well, I didn't really want to retire after all, did I? Maybe I do want to work some more. So it does give people the opportunity to back out of it at that point in time. But... As far as maximum benefits goes, when I talk about maximum Social Security benefit, that's your, the Social Security that you can get at age 66 or 67, whichever age group you fall into. That's your maximum benefit. Your early Social Security benefit is still 62 and always will be as far as I know. So then you have your, then you have your full uh, maximum retirement age. At age 66 or 67, that's your full retirement age. Maximum comes at age 70. So you can wait until age 70 to start collecting. And if you were 62 years old, let's say, and you were getting $2,572 a month, Social Security, at 62. Well, if you had waited till age 66, that turns into $3,627 a month. So you're looking at, I don't know, over $1,000 a month difference. That's $12,000 a year by waiting a few years, four years in this case, to get Social Security. And then if you're over 70 or 70 years old or older, you can get $4,555 a month if you had waited till age 70. So look at the difference. You're almost doubling the amount of money that you can get if you wait until age 70, but a lot of people can't do it, Kevin. They just can't. Health reasons, other concerns. We're talking about boosting your Social Security income today on Truth and Planning, and I'm with my co-host, Gary Anderson, financial advisor of Anderson Advisors. And sometimes it's those little things that seem like just a little Mm -hmm. thing, maybe waiting a year or a couple of years before you retire. But like you said, sometimes people, their health doesn't allow it. Right. And, when, and some people know that there's a good chance they aren't going to live 
as long as they would like to. They're not going to live till 85 or 86. That gives you more reason to think, well, uh, I need to start Social Security earlier because I won't be getting it as long as I could have. And uh, that makes total sense. It depends on the individual. But if you can wait, if you can wait until age 70, ideally, then you're looking at $3,600 a month or more easily there, $4,000 a month. And um, if you had to generate that amount of income, let's say $43,000 a year in Social Security income, about $3,600 a month, if you, had to, if you had to generate that type of income with your investments and your savings, you have to have over a million dollars to generate that type of income. So that's how important Social Security is. Sometimes we minimize it. Sometimes we laugh about it and, and think it's you know, kind of ridiculous that Social Security is in the shape it's in right now. But look at what it does for people's overall income. You add that to your investment income, things like that, it really does add up, and it makes a big difference. But the key is deciding when you can take it, making sure you take it at the right time, and that's where a conversation should come in with an advisor, someone who could help you with that. And I know just the advisor. Gary, give them your information so they can get in touch with you. Kevin, they can call us at Anderson Advisors, 888-371-2847. When we come back, we're going to talk about blended families. families. I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. And I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. Gary, here's the story. It's about a man named Brady who had three sons of his own. We're very familiar with that theme song about the Brady Bunch. Mm -hmm. And it was a very popular show back in the 70s. Uh, I know there was uh, many other shows uh, on there. Uh, What was it, Bill? What's the name of that? Family Affair. There it's about go. a blended family. It's about a blended family. And many other uh, TV shows and sitcoms were about a blended family. And there's a lot of issues, uh, family dynamics and things that go into uh, a blended family. Our first president, George Washington, was a part of a blended family. He and Martha uh, did not have any children together. Uh, Martha had some children from a previous marriage when her husband died. And plus, they... Uh, Martha had some nephews that uh, she and George ended up adopting. So they were a, a blended family. The first family was a blended family. And throughout history, we have very famous blended families, the Brady Bunch being one that comes to mind. And so how does having a blended family and estate planning come into play? Well, Gary, in my 35 plus years of practice, I can tell you that I've seen it just probably like Every third client that comes in to see me is a part of a blended family. It might have been because of divorce. It might have been because it was a second marriage because they lost their first spouse. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people getting married or remarried uh, in their later years. uh, uh, And so they bring children into the marriage. And so there are a lot, like I said, there are a lot of issues socially, uh, family dynamics that are involved 
But in estate planning, I found in planning for estate planning for blended families, a trust works ideal. In fact, in many, many cases, a trust is designed for blended families. It's like the Swiss army knife of estate planning tools uh, when it comes to all the issues you have to deal with in estate planning. You see this many times in blended families. He brings assets into the marriage. She brings assets into the marriage. And sometimes it's just about the same amount. Maybe she lived in a home and he had a home. And what do you do with our respective homes? So not only are there children that are brought into the marriage, uh, now there's also assets that are brought Mm -hmm. into the marriage. And we live in a state in the state of Georgia called a title state. And you've heard me talk about title uh, all the time on, uh, on this radio show. Title is so important in planning for blended families because in the state of Georgia, title means everything. In other states like California and Texas, they call them community property states. Title is not as important as it is status. Your marriage mm-hmm. has an impact uh, on in community property states more so than how you title it. But in the state of Georgia, title is one of the central keys to planning, estate planning for blended families. So how do you plan for blended families? What are some of the issues that you face? Well, one of the issues you face in blended families, I see this all the time, is husband and wife, their primary goal is they want to take care of their spouse, especially their surviving spouse. And you see that uh, we see this a lot because when people come to see this, they're in the later stages of their life. It might be a second marriage, but they're in their 60s or 70s. I've even seen some uh, second, third marriages when the people are in their 80s. And so their primary concern is they want to take care of their surviving spouse. Now, the kids have another concern, and that other concern is, my mom or dad is marrying somebody that has some health issues or potential health issues, and those things could wipe us out, my parents out financially, which means, read between the lines, there won't be anything left for us. <laughs> and so the kids are real concerned about that on both sides of the aisle, both sets of kids. But the primary goal of mom and dad is to take care of their surviving spouse, because in marriage, that's your primary concern. Your kids are important, but they're secondary to your spouse. The secret to a good marriage is focusing on your spouse. And so they want to take care of their spouse. They want to provide for their spouse. They want to make sure things are taken care of. But how can they do it in such a way that they also protect things to go along down the line if something happens in the future, like the marriage doesn't work out or there's long-term care in the future for one of them or one of them passes away. I know it's always people chuckle when I say this to them, but you know, you, one concern could be if I pass away and I leave everything to my spouse and my spouse finds a new boyfriend or girlfriend after we pass away, what's going to happen to all of my assets? I'm going now all of a sudden Mm -hmm. and funding the college for some grandkid that I never knew that was never a part of my family. So that is a primary concern. So how do you take care of the spouse at the same time, making sure that you uh, protect the family uh, in the future? Planning for blended families. I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, and I'm here with my co-host, Kevin Tharp, estate planning and elder law attorney. And Kevin, I know 
blended families are almost the rule rather than the exception anymore. Yes. And I know that you do see a great percentage of people who are in blended families because everybody does have concern about what's going to happen to the assets, like you're saying, when something happens to them. Making sure that dad's money stays dad's money. And yes, dad's money stays dad's money, so I will inherit it potentially one of these days. And there's nothing wrong with that. You do have, a, as a, the child in a blended family has a, protect, has a reason to protect the assets, not only for their parents, but also for themselves and their families as well. Mm-hmm. And so you do like to keep it separated. But I know, Kevin, it does add another degree of complicity as well. It, it takes more to even get there with this. Yes. And so that's why we focus on, and what we're going to talk about on today's show, are three things, three laws, three elements, three principles to focus on when you're planning for blended families. If these three three things are present in your plans, then you have a complete plan for your blended family. Number one is focus on title. Why? Because title's the engine that determines everything. And there are three rules that we focus on as a part of the law of title. First, we recommend in blended families to title things separately. Now, that kind of sounds totally opposite of what we've been told and trained and taught uh, in, is, in marriage is you don't keep things separate from each other. And I'm not telling, talking about keeping secrets from each other. I'm talking about when you bring assets into the marriage, don't commingle those. Keep them titled mm-hmm. separately. You still can benefit. Your spouse can still benefit from these assets if they're titled separately but what you bring into the marriage keep it titled separately there's many benefits of doing that number one you're going to protect your surviving spouse if you keep it titled separately number two you're going to make sure that things are preserved for your children and grandchildren if something happens to your spouse before you so keep things titled separately if God forbid the marriage does not work out. We live in a title state that says if that marriage doesn't work out and you keep things titled separately that you brought into the marriage, then it's not a marital asset subject to division. So keep things titled separately and you'll have uh, the first step in preparing for planning for a blended family. Title things to avoid probate. That's also the key, because in probate, the laws give the surviving spouse rights that are superior to the children or grandchildren, Mm -hmm. regardless of what your document says, regardless of what your will says. I want everything to stay in trust or I give my spouse a life estate in the home. Whatever your will or document says does not matter in probate. Your surviving spouse has rights called your support that can defeat that document. So title things so you avoid probate. And the last thing is title things so you can protect the surviving spouse. Leave your surviving spouse an inheritance. Leave them your entire estate, but leave it to them in such a way that they're protected, especially if they go into a nursing home, but also they can't give it away except giving it away to your kids and your grandkids. And a revocable living trust checks off all the titling boxes that I just addressed. Kevin, why don't you give people your information real quickly so they can get in touch with you, especially if we're talking about blended families. 
Gary, the best way is through my website, kevintharp.com. Ways to maximize your Social Security. That's coming up next. Your Social Security in 35 years. I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. And I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. So this is going to kind of be a futuristic show, and we're going to look at what your Social Security is going to be in 35 years well, from now. Well, yeah, that's kind of a good, good observation there, Kevin, because that's exactly what we're talking about here today. When it comes to Social Security, we want to know how to get the most money we possibly can, right? We always want as much income as we possibly can get, and that Social Security is going to be a very key component of your retirement income. But one of the ways we can maximize it, and you might say, well, this is after the fact. I've already been working all these years, is to work at least 35 years in a job that's covered by Social Security. And uh, 35 years seems like a long time, but you can, if you're 55, 60 years old, you, you're realizing you've probably worked more than 35 years anyway. But what that 35 years has to do with your Social Security is very significant. Because what Social Security does, it takes your best 35 years of your working career, the years you made the most money, the top 35 years, that determines how much income you're going to get from your Social Security benefits. So that's important because a lot of times over the years, some people haven't worked an entire 35 years or they may have worked at a job that wasn't under Social Security. You weren't paying Social Security taxes with that job. And so you've got these zeros. If you, if you go to uh, uh, socialsecurity.gov, you, if you haven't set up a, um, an ID in your own page there, it's a good idea to do that. Get all your login information set up. So you can go out and look at that Social Security statement every now and then. One reason you need to look at it, is to make sure it's right, because you you can look at all of those 35 years, or actually all the years you've ever worked and paid into the system, or own your Social Security statement online, right there. You can look at them right now. And what it does is it gives you the years which you made 12000 a year, way back there, $25,000 a year. Also shows years you made zero in that time frame. But let's say it, your, so your career spanned, your working career, it spanned maybe 35 to 40 years or 50 years even, then it's only going to take the best 35, which is good. Because sometimes people, one way you can maximize your Social Security, work just a little bit longer. Work two, three more years in that job that you have now that you're getting paid maybe the most you've ever been paid in your life because those years are really going to weight how much Social Security you're going to get because it raises that average. It's kind of like baking a cake, Kevin. What's your favorite kind of cake? Oh, chocolate cake. Love chocolate cake. In any form. Absolutely, me too. Any kind. Chocolate yellow frosting, chocolate with chocolate (laughs) frosting. I had this chocolate mousse cake the other day. It was my uh, Joey's birthday, our oldest son, and... um, I had that, and it was extremely good, too, so I know what you mean. But I also know this, too. If that person had left one component out of that cake, out of that recipe for that cake, it wouldn't have tasted good at all. So 
your 30, best 35 years are very important because those years that are zero, that's a bad ingredient. That's no ingredient. Maybe you forgot the sugar. <laughs> Whoa. But well, that's going to be a problem with cake. Um, had a sister-in-law one time who made chocolate ice cream, best-looking chocolate ice cream you've ever seen in your life. Everybody took a bite of it about the same time, and everybody had this strange look on their face because she forgot to put the sugar in. <laughs> oh, boy. It's like that bittersweet chocolate. But that's exactly what Social Security, this average Social Security you're going to get, that 35 years, those years you had zero, those are the years you left the sugar out or you left <laughs> the milk out or you left cocoa out, for crying out loud. Whatever it was, that's going to have an impact on the flavor of your Social Security, of your retirement years. So let's make sure that you're checking your Social Security statement. Make sure it's right because you can look at this and say, Wait a minute, I know I worked in the system that year. It's showing that I only worked half that much or none. That's something that if you've got the backup, Social Security can fix that for you. These are the very simple things you can do to help yourself make more with your Social Security when you are ready to retire. We're talking about Social Security and some key ingredients to maximize your Social Security. And Gary, I like the uh, uh, comment about I can go online and see all the years of earnings of Social Security. So I'm likely to go on there and see all those hours that I worked. My dad made me mow the grass and and pressure wash the house and clean off the driveway. And my mom made me sweep uh, inside and clean up my bed. I'm going to see those years on there as well, right? Yeah, yeah you're going to see them because they're going to be a zero. zero. <laughs> I left out the sugar on that one, didn't no I? No sugar, no cocoa, no whatever it is. Yeah, those are the years. Mm -hmm. So those are the years you would rather make sure don't count towards your Social Security because they aren't accounting in a negative direction when you do that, when you average a zero in a few times. One thing we run into a lot of, women typically have less Social Security benefits than men. It's changing now a good bit because you have more women in the workplace and more women, women with very high-paying jobs in the workplace. That helps. But in the past, and it still occurs today, a lot of times women, well, you have children. You may take off two or three years to raise your kids before you get them off to school and things like that. You may have aging parents. You may have had to look after them. You might not have worked those years. Those years are showing a lot of times as zero or very small amounts when it comes to your Social Security benefit. So be cognizant of that. Those years that you were not working in a, play, in a job that, was paying, that you were paying Social Security taxes on, those are really going to hurt you down the line. So it may help to work two or three more years. Betsy did this. Uh, with her teacher's retirement, she worked a little bit longer to make sure she had her full retirement, and it wasn't difficult for her to do because she knew there was a nice reward at the end of that. And so keep that in mind. We want to make sure that you make as much money as you possibly can, and let's get the best 35 years in your Social Security averaging that you possibly can. If you have questions on that, please feel free to give us a call because this is something that you need to get right. Patience, that's another way that you can enhance your Social Security benefits. Well, what do you mean patience? Well, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Kevin. If you can wait until age 70, the rewards are very significant. And somebody says, well, yeah, but I've worked six, four, five, or six, or eight more years to get that. 
Well, that's true, but you're going to reap the rewards because your Social Security income per month, if you wait till age 70, it's easily worth a thousand, two thousand, maybe even three thousand more dollars a month to you because you just decided to wait a little longer. That's every month. Kevin, if I'm say if I'm making two thousand more dollars a month, every month, every year, twenty-four thousand dollars a year every year, that that's a huge amount of money by the time it's all said and done. And it also benefits your spouse as well. So working until age 70 does have its benefits if you possibly can do it. It's a big benefit for you. And then also think about this for your spouse. Always remember, your spouse can get 50% of whatever your Social Security is right now. If you're drawing Social Security, your wife is of Social Security age, your wife can look at, and I'm saying wife because, you know, we're guys sitting here. Mm -hmm. Your wife, but it works both ways. Your wife is, let's say, getting $1,000 a month in Social Security. Then you decide to retire, and maybe your Social Security is $4,000 a month. Right now, the maximum Social Security is $4,555 a month. So you can get up to that much if you've contributed enough over the years. But let's say your wife, then, if you're getting $4,000 a month, your wife can now, because you've decided to start uh, taking Social Security, your wife can opt for the $2,000 versus the 1000 she's getting now. That's a huge pay increase for both of you. And like I said, it works for both ways. Whichever spouse is making the least amount of Social Security can benefit from the spouse, even while they're alive, that's making the most Social Security. Gary, how can our listeners make sure that they are maximizing their Social Security? Kevin, they can call us at Anderson Advisors, 888-371-2847. In the next segment, we're going to talk about more about planning for blended families. More on estate planning for blended families. I'm Kevin Tharp, Elder Law and Estate Planning Attorney. And I'm Gary Anderson, Financial Advisor, Anderson Advisor. Gary, in the previous segment, we talked about the first of three important elements when it comes to estate planning for blended families. We talked about some of the balance that blended families need that perhaps planning for your traditional family uh, is not needed. Uh, and one of the things we focused on uh, and started with is the most important thing, and that is titling. Titling are very important in, in all situations in estate planning, uh, but particularly in blended families. Because many times in blended families, husband and wife are bringing in assets that they've acquired from their previous marriage. Um, and so many times they're bringing in these assets and they want to use these assets so they mutually benefit. They want to be able to take care of their spouse, and especially if, if uh, when they pass away. But at the same time, they want to make sure, okay, this stuff I bring in the marriage, I want to leave this to my family. She wants to leave her stuff to her kids and her family. So one way to make sure that you're protected in a blended family is husband and wife title things separately. Not because you're leaving separate lives, but by titling things separately, there's more protection. In fact, that's even true for just your traditional family, first marriage, first marriages. If you title things separately, there's more protection for a married couple 
Uh, for example, a husband's assets are not responsible for a wife's debts or vice versa in the state of Georgia because we're a title state. Mm. So if, if I incurred some huge medical debt and everything's titled in my wife's name, just because she's married to me doesn't automatically mean she's responsible for it. So this is why I like uh, titling things separately. This is why I t- advise my clients, title things separately. Title things so that you avoid probate. Because in probate, the surviving spouse has rights that trump your document. So regardless of what your will says, you may say, I want to leave things to my spouse but only for their benefit as long as they're living. If they remarry again after I die, then I want my house, for example, to go here. Or when they die, I want my house to go to my kids. So you put all of that in a will, but you got to go through probate with a will because a will is missing title. And now all of a sudden the surviving spouse says, I don't like those wishes. And they can challenge them because probate gives them the opportunity to do so called year support. Their rights as a surviving spouse are superior to any creditor you have, as well as any child or grandchild or any beneficiary you have. So avoid probate and you can avoid that. You can make sure that your wishes are honored because that uh, by putting them in a trust and titling the assets in the name of the trust, then you avoid probate. Another thing that I would recommend in blended families is title things so you can protect and provide for the surviving spouse. Leave them things through a trust. By leaving them things through a trust, you make sure that your surviving spouse is protected, especially if they go into a nursing home, because when you leave your surviving spouse an inheritance through a trust, they are protected, especially if they're in a nursing home. If you leave things to a surviving spouse, you make sure it's protected because it makes sure it stays in your family. If your surviving spouse remarries, they can't give it away to their new spouse. It has to stay in the trust for the benefit of that surviving spouse, and it stays in your family. So you protect your surviving spouse while at the same time protecting your estate. So titling is real important. Gary, here's another legal principle that's important in blended families. Title things so you have access. Title things so the people you trust also have access. Access is one of the most common reasons that we get calls on a regular basis is something has happened to a person, their spouse, their loved one, incapacity, and nobody can get access. Nobody can get to accounts. Nobody can get to things and do anything because nobody has access oftentimes because of the way it's titled. Mm. So keep things separately, but keep things titled so that you can get access if you want your surviving spouse to be, or your spouse to be able to help you, give them access, and maybe one of your adult children can also have access to make sure that you're taken care of and things are protected and preserved. And a revocable trust is the key to doing that. Because you don't need to give up ownership to get access, and you don't give up ownership when you give people access, and that's where revocable trust comes in. So many people think, well, if I want my kids to be able to access things, I need to put their name on my bank account. And that is absolutely the opposite of what you want to do, because if you give up ownership to get access, 
you lose asset protection. So keep ownership, give others you trust access, define when they get this access, define how they use that access, and you can do all of that in a revocable living trust. So access is real important. Yeah, but a blended family is it's a phenomenon we see a huge amount of the time. I, I would I would venture to say at least half the families I work with are probably more, and I'm going to actually do a little survey to find out exactly how many, what the percentages are. Probably half of the families at least are blended families that we work with. And I do understand the importance, maybe even more so, of getting the planning right for this blended family. It's critical because you've got two different, actually four different families involved when it comes down to it. And you know you have it right, Gary, if you have title and access coordinated together. And here's the third thing to focus on. Because many times in blended families, you have this concern, especially when it's later in life. People marry later in life, and not long after they get married, their spouse has health issues. And it can be serious health issues. It could be issues leading to a nursing home. And I get calls on a regular basis from dad goes in, husband goes into a nursing home. I get calls from the wife. I get calls from dad's kids and I get calls from mom's kids. It's the fact that my stepdad is in a nursing home. Is that going to cause him to lose everything he owns and then everything my mom owns with him? Because we're told by the nursing home, you're married, you're responsible for that debt in the nursing home. Wife's assets that she has separately, well, those things are responsible, right? And that's why we tell you, title them separately. A wife's assets are not responsible for a husband's debts. Just because you're married doesn't mean you're going to get stuck with your husband's nursing home bill. Just because you're married. If you keep assets titled separately. But here's the bigger reason. Focus on the type of assets you have. If you're a part of a blended family, focus on the t- if you're part of a part of a traditional family, focus on the type of assets you have and that will tell you whether or not you're protected. So if you own a home for example, your home is the type of asset that is protected. And if you title it separately from your spouse, there's an extra layer of protection. But asset protection, Gary, always starts with type of asset. Tell me what type of asset you have, and I'll tell you whether it's protected or not, especially if you're looking at protection from nursing homes. Your home, your retirement account. Your retirement account, Gary, is one that's automatically titled separately. You can't have a co-ownership on your retirement account. So if you're married and your spouse is in a nursing home and you've got an IRA and he's got an IRA or she's got an IRA, they're both protected because they're retirement accounts. So you don't have to worry about losing your home and your retirement account. Why? Because they're both the type of asset that is protected. Here's another one if you're, if you're married. Community spouse resource allowance. That's the amount of money you can have in bank accounts, whether they're titled joint or separately, that are protected. And that number right now is $150,000 and will go up next year. So focus on the type of assets before you start panicking and start giving up ownership or worrying I'm going to lose everything I own as well as everything my spouse owns as well. Kevin, the information you can give people 
allows them to make a good, informed decision. Why don't you give them your information so they can give you a call? Gary, the best way to give me a call is through my website, kevintharpe.com. Investment advisory services are offered through Anderson Advisors, a registered investment advisory firm. Anderson Advisors is an independent financial services firm that helps people create retirement strategies using a variety of insurance and investment products. Investments involves risk, including the potential for loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Any reference to protection, safety, and lifetime income generally refers to fixed insurance products, never securities or investments. Insurance guarantees are backed by the strength and paying capabilities of the insurance carrier. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. You should consult with a financial advisor to help determine the best options for your particular circumstances. No statement made during this show shall constitute tax or legal advice. Our firm is not endorsed by the United States government or any governmental agency. The information and opinions construed herein presented by third parties have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable. Completeness cannot be guaranteed. Neither Gary Anderson or Anderson Advisors is affiliated with attorney J. Kevin Tharp or any guests on this show.